0: Look with me, Galatians chapter 3. Though I'm only going to be teaching verses 6 through 14 this morning, I'm going to begin reading, excuse me, 10 through 14, I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at the Word of God, Your Word, penned by the Apostle Paul, as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, that as we consider this, Your Spirit would turn on the lights for us so that we would see and know the truth of Your Word. They'd give us spiritual sight and spiritual hearing so that we would hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches through the Apostle Paul as he writes to the church at Galatia. Help us to get your word clear. Help us to repent where we need to to find great joy in the promises here as we hear that Christ became the curse for us so that we might receive the blessing in in Him. Pray that as we consider this, you would work powerfully among this congregation by the, by the working of your spirit, and that your son would be exalted, that people would be saved, and they would be encouraged in their faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, I, I, was, I was laughing because I had I decided on what my introduction would be, and I was going to tell you some a funny story about Jason, one of our pastors, and I looked over and saw his parents were here, and I thought... <laughs> Great, well, here we go. So let me tell you a funny story. They probably know, may may or may not. Um, so back when um, Jason was when he was interning for me, and then even when he became a pastor uh, with me, um, I had the hardest time getting him to date anybody. I kept telling, him, you need to get marri- you need to date somebody and get married and I still remember when, he, when we asked him to be associate pastor at the church. We said, Jason, okay, so the, the group of leadership basically told him, you will do this or we'll excommunicate you, um, uh, jokingly, and he, he took it because he was so reluctant, but he took it, he came in, and then he, um, I said, now, here's the thing, you need to get married right away because we're not having one of these pastors who, like, dates women in the church. You know, that'd be awkward, right? What happens if you break up? You know, do you leave? What goes on there? So we said, we don't want to do that, and so, Jason, we, I want you to find a girl, and, and by the grace of God, Kristen walked in, like, the first Sunday, the first Sunday, as a pastor, she walks in. I looked at her Facebook profile. She was perfect. I said, "This is her." <laughs> she was the one for Jason. So <laughs> we we laughed about it. Jason and I went back and forth, and he he eventually asked her out, which he was always reluctant to do because he always found some things with with women that he wasn't for reasons for which he was not interested. <laughs> and um, and so Jason pro- and Kristen progressed in their relationship, and. And I could tell at some point that he was in love with her. I could tell this guy is head over heels. He loves this girl. And, and so I asked him, I said, so have you, have you asked or, or told Kristen yet, have you told her I love you? Have you told her that yet? And, and uh, he said, no, no, I haven't. And I said, really? I mean, you guys have been dating for a long time now, and you clearly love her, and you have not yet, uttered those words to her. Nope. I, so I said, why? Why haven't you told her? I mean, I was used to basically, you fall in love with somebody, you tell them, right? I'm, I love you, you know, and it's just, you know, anyway. So, he he's like, no, no, and i, I was surprised. So I asked him why, and he said to me, and I, I remember this, well, because I was startled by it, but he said, because love is a commitment. He said, love's a commitment, so until I'm putting a ring on her finger, I shouldn't use that word. And, uh, I remember I was kinda of like, man, you are too intense, you know. <laughs> but 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 I actually stopped and thought about it for a while and, and realized, you know, Jason's right. He's right. He's more mature than me in that. He gets it. Love is a commitment. It's a commitment. And and love is a word that frankly can be dangerous if used inappropriately in the context of dating, can't it? If you use the word love prior to making a commitment to the other person, it can actually be harmful to the other person, can't it? Some of you have been in relationships where the word love has been used, and then you break up, and the use of that has really caused harm. Uh, You see, even though using the word or the phrase I love you is actually in and of itself a good thing, isn't it? To say I love you in and of itself is a good thing. Used improperly, it can be quite unloving, can't it? And there are many things in and of themselves that are good things, which used improperly can be harmful. Not just the use of the phrase, I love you, in the context of dating. Lots of things. Think, think about natural things, fire and water. Both good things, in and of themselves, used improperly, quite dangerous and harmful. Or, or relational things, intimacy and sex. Both good things, in and of themselves, used improperly, quite destructive. There are good things in and of themselves, but when used improperly are harmful. And and really the reason I give you those examples is because I want to get at the fact and get you to understand the fact that the central problem with the use of the law by the Judaizers in Galatia is that they're using the law improperly. As we've been going through the book of Galatians, we've been seeing how the Judaizers have been using the law, and they've been using it improperly. These professing Jewish Christians have been telling the Galatian church, largely composed of Gentiles, though not exclusively, that they must be circumcised, and they must keep the law of Moses to be saved. I mean, they were telling them, the the Judaizers were telling the Galatians, sure, you need faith in Jesus to be saved, but you also need to keep the law. You also need to keep the law. And the Galatian church, what's happening as we've looked at this book, is they've quickly, Paul says, deserted the gospel for this false gospel, and Paul's writing to combat that. And using the law this way, what the Judaizers have done is they've used the law unlawfully. They've used the law destructively. I, I want you to hear this, because when God gave the law, he gave us something inherently good. You hear that? The law is inherently good. The law is a reflection of God's holy character. Paul tells us in Romans 7 that the law is holy and righteous and good. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.21, later in the same chapter, that the law is not contrary. Hear to this. The law is not contrary to the promises of God. In fact, he says in Romans 3.31 that the law is upheld by the gospel. However, If the law is used unlawfully, that's what I want you to get a hold of. If the law is used improperly, then the law is burdensome and destructive. The Judaizers were convincing the Galatians to use the law as a means of justification. As a means of right standing before God. And when the law is used for justification, for earning a right standing before God, we have a term for that. You know what it is? Legalism. Legalism legalism. Legalism is damning because the law used for justification can only be damning. That's it. Last week I said that Paul's really passionately appealing to the Galatians to rescue them from this false gospel of legalism. He actually starts off by calling them foolish Galatians, asking them, who's bewitched them? In some way, pointing to the fact that Satan got a hold of your minds? Why are you running after the lie instead of believing the truth? How come you're so quickly deserting the gospel? I mean, he planned the church six months to a year prior to writing this letter. And they're already running after legalism. It happens quick, folks. This is what you want to get a hold of. Paul knows this. This is the experience of the church. You realize that Jesus is your justification, that he has saved you. And it doesn't take very long before it starts to set into your heart that you somehow add to it. And legalism comes in. And Paul's thesis is clear. Justification, or right standing before God, comes only through faith in Christ. You hear that? That's the thesis. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's his thesis. And what we're going to do is look at the stark contrast that he makes to demonstrate this. Because this morning, in this passage in verses 10-14, through 14, we looked at 6-9 through nine last week, and we'll continue to go back to it, but this morning, as we look at verses 10 through 14, he makes this stark contrast. It, it's, it's essentially you choose one of two paths, if you will. And notice we're going to look as we look at those, here are the two parts. If you rely on the works of the law, look at verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law. If you rely on the works of the law, you will be cursed. The second part is this. If you rely on the cross of Christ, you will be blessed. You hear those two arguments? Start conscious. If you rely or trust in works of the law, you'll be cursed. If you rely on the cross of Christ, you will be blessed. So let's turn to the first argument. Those who rely on the law for justification are cursed. Let's, let's look at verse 10 and follow his logic. For all who rely on works of the law, in other words, trust in, put your faith in, rest upon, works of the law, that means your good works, law-keeping, your own deeds, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now, Paul doesn't come out and say this, but it's implied here, the curse is from God. God is the one who curses you. You want to rely on your own good works? God is the one who curses you. For it is written, now he quotes Deuteronomy, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. I want you to know if, see if you hear the argument. He cites from Deuteronomy to say, if you want to earn right standing before God, if you want to do that by trusting in your own law keeping, your own good works, your own personal effort, then let us remember that the bar that the Scripture sets for you. You want to get there by your own law keeping? Here's the bar. You must do all things written in the law. All of them. Without fail, ever. If you fail to keep even one law, you're cursed. And here's Paul's implied conviction, really. You can't keep the law perfectly. He never comes out and says you can't. He just knows that his audience would know that, right? They're not stupid. If I told you, you have to do every single command of the law perfectly without fail your whole life, perpetually and perfectly keep the law throughout your entire life, if you want to um, earn your justification before God that way, you would know without me ever saying it, you can't do that, wouldn't you? Would I have to come out and say, and by the way, you can't do it? You would know that. And Paul knows his audience knows that. You can't keep the law perfectly. No one can keep the law. And you might object, well, why do I have to keep all the law? How come all the law? Well, isn't some of the law good enough? Well, maybe the first reason is, is because God's word says you must. And that should pretty much end the discussion, right? Because the Bible says so, Right? That's the end of the discussion. But let me go on. Secondly, because God is holy, He's perfectly holy. And therefore, His standard is holy and perfect. And we can't come to Him with this argument well, I think my good works outweigh my bad works. I think somehow my law keeping outlay- outweighs my law breaking. That's, and think that somehow God will accept that because that doesn't even work in the human justice system. The human justice system has fallen, isn't it? But you can't go into a courtroom after you've received a ticket for running a red light and say to the, the judge, Well, your honor, yeah, yes, I ran that red light, but I'm not guilty because I stopped at all the lights before it and all the lights after it. And think he's gonna let you off. You also can't come before him if you've just committed murder and say, yeah, Yes, yes, Your Honor, I, I murdered that person, but I'm innocent because you should see all the people I let live. <laughs> you can't do that, can you? In other words, that's an appeal to my good works outweigh my bad. That doesn't work in a fallen human justice system. What makes you think it's gonna work before a perfect, holy God? His word is clear it does not. We have sinned before a perfect holy judge. We have violated the law before an infinitely righteous king. And how can we dismiss our violations of the law by pointing out that we did some good things? You've all did, done some good things, I'm sure. That does not dismiss your lawbreaking. If you believe your good works outweigh your bad, you either have too high a view of yourself or you have too low a view of the holiness of God. I, I think about the Ten Commandments. I, just, just go through them quickly. You, you probably know them. You shall have no other gods before me. That before me doesn't mean he's first. Like, well, you worship me, and then you can worship your wife and kids, and then your job. What? That's not his point, right? Right? No other gods before me is in my presence. You, you can't have any other. Where is he? He's everywhere. So you can't have any other gods, just him. He's the only one you worship. And then you ask the question, have I ever put any gods in my life other than him? Well, have I ever sinned? Because if I have, I've preferred that thing more than what God wants, which means I've put that thing above him. And so I violated the first commandment. Have you? Second commandment and third commandment start walking out. Do not make any graven images. In other words, you're going to worship God only the way he wants to be worshipped. You're never going to use his name in vain. You guys ever violate any of that? I mean, how many of you stood in here and sang songs just, just sort of using your lips and you're singing along, but your heart and mind are not there? It's taking the Lord's name in vain. Committed that sin? You ever... Find your prayer life to to the point where you, you realize that every time you go to pray, you're about to thank God for the food, and you're not even eating. You've taken the Lord's name in vain a bunch of times. How about keeping the Sabbath holy? I, I'll keep going. Honor your father and mother. D- ever disobey your parents? That ca- command carries over, according to Jesus in Matthew 15, by the way, to honoring them in their older age, caring for them financially. How about how about not murdering? Jesus says in Matthew five that if you ever hate somebody in your heart, call them worthless, fool. That's the rockaz, worthless. You go to hell. You deserve to die. I, I'm, I'm, you're dead to me. Ever done that? That's commission of murder in the heart. How about committing adultery? Do not commit adultery. Jesus says in Matthew five that if you lust in your heart after someone else, you've committed adultery. What, what about not committing theft? You're like, well, I've never stolen anything. You ever used your time at work on yourself? Surfed the internet, played around. That's your boss's time you just stole. He's paying you for that. Use it for something else. What, what, about, what about not bearing false witness? You ever gossiped or slandered or lied uh, or, or coveting? You ever, you ever wanted your neighbors anything? Right? Well, we've all violated the Ten Commandments, haven't we? Many times. Many times. We've not kept them. And, and the the condemnation of Scripture is if you don't keep every one of God's laws, every one perfectly and perpetually, without failure, you're under the curse. You're under the curse. The law pronounces, and the law is being personified there. It's God speaking to the law, pronounces a curse upon you. We've not kept them. Therefore, our status is cursed by God. But Paul isn't done with his argument yet. Look what he says in verses 11 and 12. Now it is evident that no one, no one, that's a universal negative. No one. Who's included in no one? Everyone, right? No one is justified, in other words, before God, has right standing before God, is declared righteous before God by the law. No one. Not only no one when Paul's writing, not only no one now, but no one in the Old Testament even. Paul's going to get to that in a minute. No one is justified before God by the law. For, he quotes now from Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And I think probably more properly translated, the righteous by faith shall live. But the law is not of faith. Now notice he's contrasting these two things. Very negative statement about the law here. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, what he's saying is, if you're going to use the law as a means of justification, then you've opposed the law to faith in Christ as a means of justification. You hear Paul's claim. No one is justified before God by the law. And how do we know that tr- is true? Paul says, because the prophet Habakkuk told us it was true. Habakkuk said in Habakkuk 2.4 that the righteous by faith shall live. In other words, Habakkuk already signaled to us that justification is by faith in Christ. Paul then makes a strange statement, the law is not of faith, and it sounds like a very out, negative outlook on the law because it is a very negative outlook on the law. But it's not negative in the sense that Paul does, thinks, feels negatively about the law itself, or in itself, but he's negative about the law as a means to justification, or right standing before God. Paul then marshals another Old Testament quote from Leviticus to drive the point home. The one who does them, that means the works of the law, the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, if you can keep them all, you'll have life, but you can't. In other words, if you want to stand before God on the basis of your law keeping, then you're opposed to justification by faith. Once you introduce your works, you've overturned justification by faith. You've overturned it. You can't have it both ways. Justification comes before God either by trusting in another, Jesus Christ, or by trusting in your own law keeping. You can't have it both ways. You either trust in another or yourself. But those two ways of gaining right standing before God are opposed to each other. And I think Paul's use of Habakkuk 2 4 here is really telling because. He's not just using Habakkuk 2.4 as a proof text. It isn't like Paul just rips Habakkuk 2.4 out of its context and just throws it in there and says, see, Habakkuk said this. And you go back and go, I don't even understand his use of, uh, of Habakkuk. Now, I am not going to have time this morning to walk you through how Paul is using Habakkuk. But, but here's I'm just going to give you the summation of the study that I did on this. Paul began his biblical appeal to justification by faith alone and Christ alone by pointing to the fact that Abraham was declared righteous. Look at verse 6 of chapter 3. That Abraham was declared righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Paul's pointing back to Genesis 15, 6 and saying, Abraham believed the promises, of God. And those promises included the Christ, which we're going to see later in Galatians 3, and really were given ultimately to the Christ. Abraham believed those. He was justified by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And Habakkuk, he comes in and says, Habakkuk is saying the same thing. And I think what Paul's doing is he's saying Habakkuk is rightly understanding Genesis 15.6. Habakkuk is really commenting on Genesis 15.6. And he's saying, and so what Paul's saying in the Galatians is, in contrast to what the Judaizers were saying, keeping the law is never how you were justified. And essentially what he's, what he's arguing in this very long set of Old Testament quotations is, Abraham understood that keeping the law was never how you were justified. Moses, who wrote Genesis, understood that keeping the law was never how you were justified. Habakkuk understood that keeping the law was never how you were justified when he wrote about moses writing about abraham you follow the argument in other words what paul's saying is all the way from genesis to the minor prophets the argument or the way of justification has been the same it's by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone that has never changed The law, yes, is holy and righteous and good, but the law has never justified. You were never a child of the promise. You were never spiritually alive or justified by being a law keeper. You were justified by faith in God's promises fulfilled in Christ. Law keeping is and always was an evidence, a proof, a fruit of a true and lively faith. That's what law keeping is. It's an evidence of a true and lively faith, but it does not add to your justification. does not add to your standing before God. In other words, what Paul is saying is he quotes, by the way, six Old Testament sources in seven verses. That's the thickest, I think, other than maybe a passage in Romans 3, um, section in which Paul just quotes Old Testament text after Old Testament text in such a short little period there. Six of them in seven sentences. When he quotes there... What he is saying is that to use the law as a means to be justified is opposed to, now hear this, is opposed to everything the Old Testament is about. You guys hear that? I know that we, we've often, many of us have grown up in circles in which we think, in the New Testament, once Jesus comes, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But in the Old Testament, they were kept by law, saved by law-keeping. And what Paul's saying is, listen, If you hold law keeping up as a means of justification, you are opposed to everything the Old Testament was ever about when it came to justification. No one was ever saved that way, ever. Justification is only by faith in Christ. Martin Luther actually talking about our inability to be justified by law keeping said this, trying to be justified by the law is like counting money out of an empty purse. Like eating and drinking from an empty dish and cup. Looking for strength and riches where there is nothing but weakness and poverty. Laying a burden on someone who is already oppressed to the point of collapse. Trying to spend a hundred gold pieces and not having even a pittance. And that leads to Paul's second argument. See, those who rely on the works of the law to be justified are cursed those who rely, here's the second argument, those who rely on the Christ of excuse me, the cross of Christ for justification are blessed. Those who rely on the cross of Christ for justification are blessed. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us. He purchased us. He bought us back from the curse of the law. Because, see, we were under that. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, notice this. Christ became a curse. He did not just get cursed. He became the curse. This is parallel to what Paul says in Romans, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says, But God made him who knew no sin be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what Paul is getting at here, driving at here, is that that Jesus became the curse in our place. See, we were the curse because of our violation of the law, and Jesus became the curse in our place. Notice he uses those very important words, for us. We were under the curse of the law. We were cursed by God. Jesus becomes the curse for us. For us, in our place. He didn't deserve it. He was holy, righteous, undefiled. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. He kept the law in every point. If anybody could earn righteousness by the law, it was him. In fact, he did. Yet he became the curse for us. And then he points back, again he says, for it is written, cursed is everyone, he's putting back to Deuteronomy, everyone Who was hanged on a tree. Now, what's the appeal to Deuteronomy about? So here's the thing in the Old Testament, when they would um, put someone to death and give them the death penalty, what they would do, the Jews would do under the Mosaic covenant, is they would take that person and hang them from a tree so that everybody knew that person was the curse. They were cursed by God. To declare to all around, to all the nation, you follow in his footsteps, you suffer a similar curse. And Paul appeals back to that and says, Jesus became the curse for us. And then he quotes from, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. In other words, Jesus is publicly displayed before everyone as the curse of God. I I want you to get a hold of that because I think blessing and cursing in the Old Testament are such important, important concepts Whenever blessing is declared, it's like a prophetic way of saying that goodness is coming your way. The Lord is being kind to you and being good to you in various ways. Even potentially rewards are coming your way. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of God. Or is the kingdom of God. So theirs is the kingdom. Of God. So blessed are they, right? Good things. Are, but there's another prophetic pronouncement. It's called a woe. Woe to you. Woe to me. It's a way of announcing a curse because God's wrath is against you. God's anger is turned on you. So when you're blessed, God's, if you will, grace and mercy and love and kindness and affection are turned on you. And when you are cursed, his justice and anger and wrath are turned on you. And he says that we were under the curse of the law, and Jesus went to the cross, was publicly displayed as the curse for us. God's anger and wrath and justice were put on him for us. He didn't deserve any of it. Uh, In fact, to understand this, I want you to look back with me to um, really the great Old Testament blessing that Aaron would say in Numbers um, chapter 6 Numbers chapter 6, this was said over the people <clears throat> at the very end and really looking forward to the Christ who would come and fulfill this for them. He says, thus you shall bless the people of Israel and, and you shall say to them, and, and think of this, this is the great blessing we all want God to say over us, the Lord bless you and keep you. Don't we want the Lord to keep us? do the Lord to show goodness to us? That's the great desire, I think, of the human heart. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Don't you want the Lord's face turned upon you in a gracious and kind and loving way so that you have a relationship with Him? The Lord lift up His countenance upon you. In other words, words, His goodness upon you in some way. His, His good if you will, turning his benevolence toward you. Lord, lift up his counts upon you and give you peace or shalom. L- listen, here's the idea. You don't have any of this in and of yourself because Adam sinned and you were born as, bo- as a sinner and you sinned. And so God's curse is upon you, not God's blessing. God isn't going to keep you, but God's going to cast you away. God isn't going to make his face shine upon you, but he's going to turn his face from you. God isn't going to be gracious to you, but he's going to be just with you. God isn't going to lift up his countenance upon you, but he's going to turn it from, from you. And he's not going to give you peace. He's going to give you hell. And so this ironic blessing is the great desire of the people of God, and it's fulfilled in Christ. And what's amazing about this is this blessing, if you will, it's almost as if you can hear it turned on its head as Jesus is on the cross. The holy, righteous, undefiled Son of God on the cross becoming the curse in our place. The sky becomes black as God cursed him. And it's as if all at once you could hear the reversal of the ironic blessing cast upon Jesus from heaven by the Father. The Lord curse you and reject you. The Lord turn his face from you and exercise wrath upon you. The Lord turn his countenance against you and give you hell. To which Jesus cries out in response, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered that. And he cried out that prayer so that we would never have to. Do you hear that? he heard and received that curse. And he prayed that prayer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you would never have to. And it is because of Jesus, standing condemned in our place, that we can know the blessing of Aaron is true for us. It's because of him becoming the curse that we can hear and know it's true for us. The Lord bless you and keep you The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And we know that that blessing is ours because of what Paul goes on to say in Galatians 3.14. If you look there as I conclude this section, so that, here's the purpose of Christ becoming the the curse for us, so that in Christ Jesus, here's both the purpose really and the result So that in Christ Jesus, through our union with Christ, through faith, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham. Now hear that. The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles or to the nations. So the blessing of Abraham might come to the nations. So that, now here's a coordinate phrase telling us what the blessing of Abraham is. You ready? That's coming to the nations. So here's the first phrase, so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the nations. Now here's the coordinate blessing. In other words, it's defining for you what the blessing of Abraham is, so that we might receive, hear this, the promised spirit through faith. What is Abraham's blessing that's going to all nations, not just to Israel, but to all nations, or the Jews, but to all nations? What is God's blessing? It's the blessing of Abraham. And what's the blessing of Abraham? The promised Holy Spirit. In other words, the Spirit breathed new life into us and united us to Christ. Thus the Spirit brought us justification and adoption and sanctification and eternal glory. That's what Paul gets at in Galatians 4 when he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's spiritual rebirth. It's what Jesus told Nicodemus. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. How are you born again? By the spirit. Jesus is referring back to Ezekiel 36 and the new covenant blessing or promise that the spirit would give us new life. Take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh that he'd cause us to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments. Not so that we could earn approval with him, but because we have approval with him. Not so that we become his children, but because we're his children through faith in Christ. We receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's the blessing God promised to Abraham. Did you hear that? When you go back and read Genesis 12 and Genesis 15... And Genesis 17, if you do not understand from reading them, if you do not understand that God is promising to save all nations through the seed of Abraham, his son who is Christ, and give them the promised Holy Spirit, then Paul says you haven't understood Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. The blessing of Abraham is that he would reverse the curse through Abraham's seed, wasn't it? Five curses in Genesis 3, five blessings in Genesis 12. He would reverse the curse through Abraham's seed. He would bless the whole earth through Abraham's seed. All the families of the earth will be blessed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He'd pour out a spirit on all flesh and so bring salvation to us all in Christ. Moses prays for that in Numbers 11. Joel tells us in chapter Joel 2 that that promise is coming. Abraham believed that gospel promise. Moses believed that gospel promise. Habakkuk believed that gospel promise. And Paul believed that gospel promise. And the question is, do you? See, at the end of the day, it's a nice history lesson to find out what they all believed. The question, however, that really bears down on you is, do you believe that gospel promise? Do you believe that your only hope before God, that your only chance at right standing before him, that your justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone? Do you believe that? That's what matters. Is that what you reflect on daily believers? Those of you who do You reflect on that constantly. Christ bore the curse for me. Christ became the curse for me so that I might receive the blessing of God. Any blessing I have is because of Him. You reflect on that every day. Paul summarizes that in Ephesians 1 when he says, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Salvation is and always has been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We must trust that. We must remember that. We must proclaim that. We must defend that for the sake of our salvation and for the sake of the salvation of every tribe and tongue and people. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your Son would be greatly at work by His Spirit in us so that we would trust not in our law-keeping, that we would not look to our own works, our own good deeds, or any such thing as our righteousness and justification before you. But we would look to your son. We would look to the fact that he was holy and righteous and undefiled, that he became the curse for us, though he was himself the blessing, so that we would receive the blessing of Abraham in Christ, the promised Holy Spirit, who brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, We pray that you would drive that home into our hearts and minds so that we would trust only in Jesus and not ourselves. Pray, Father, for the the people who are here who don't know you, who are trusting in themselves, who are believing that their good works outweigh their bad. We pray that you would let them see the light of the good news of the glory of Christ, that they would be humbled brought to an end of themselves and they would trust in Jesus for their salvation and know that he is enough for them. Father, we pray you do this great work in us by your spirit and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.